0: Okay, so, as I say, we're, we're moving on to a new series this morning. We're um, already nearly halfway through March, so we're, we're coming up fast to Easter time, and we're going to be looking over the next few weeks just at the, uh, the Passion Week, as it's called, and the last um, days of Jesus' time before his, his death and his resurrection. So this morning, the topic is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. It's an account that we have in, uh, in all four of the Gospels. Uh, we have it in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Um, and just for some context before we read the, the passage, as we say, we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' uh, time before his death, which is often known as Passion Week. And uh, today, the, the incident we're reading about today, uh, we refer to it as Palm Sunday, it's six days before the Passover, which is the, the following Saturday, um, and we're, we're reading about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, and it's a story I'm sure we're um, many of us familiar with. Um, so that's that's the context really. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and we see him um, as we'll read. We see him coming in on a, on a donkey, and, and the crowds coming out and, and praising his name and, and singing singing Hosanna to him. Um, And we're just going to really just take a look at what we can uh, we can see from from what we read, because there's there's lots of imagery in there and lots of things that tell us about God's plan of salvation. So, um, as I say, the the account is in all four uh, of the Gospels, but we'll take a reading from Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Then if we uh, cut down to verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So that's, um, that's the account that we have. And... We're really going to look at um, a few different aspects of it. Firstly, we're going to consider, why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem in this way? Why didn't he just walk in on foot? Um, And I think we can see two reasons why. The first one was, it was clear that Jesus was making a public claim to be the Messiah and the King of Israel. And we read all through the Gospels, don't we, that um, Jesus was not always so explicit about this. Um, we see lots of times when, when people perhaps guessed at who he was and he, he urged the people not to tell anyone else who, who he was. But here we see that um, in riding into Jerusalem in this way, in, in this king-like way, um, he was making an undeniable claim that he was the, the Messiah that they'd been hoping for and, and the King of Israel. And we'll see uh, in a moment or two that it's actually a fulfilment of, of an Old Testament prophecy. So that's, that's one reason. And then the second reason is I think we can say that Jesus would have known that going into Jerusalem in this way was a catalyst for the events that would lead to his crucifixion and his eventual death and resurrection. So in doing this, Jesus knew that it would start a chain of events that would lead ultimately to God's plan of salvation being, being worked out. So we have, we have two reasons there why, why Jesus did this. And I think it's a reminder to us that um, God's plan for salvation was always so thorough in its detail and it was, it was always the plan right from the beginning. Um, let's not be under any illusion that it was, um, it was by, by chance or anything that Jesus was, was taken and nailed to the cross. It was always God's plan. And in Jesus' arrival on, on the donkey, we see that he was journeying towards that sacrifice and he knew it was before him and... Um, He wanted to to do things exactly as God had planned and he was journeying towards that sacrifice of himself for us. (coughs) So, let's picture the scene. We we read that Jesus arrives on a donkey and all the crowds are singing praises to him and they're they're acknowledging him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, That's the words that they use. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they, they also say that Um, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they're acknowledging Jesus as the one who will bring about this kingdom. So there's clearly a realisation among at least some there that this this Jesus is the Messiah. And we read that they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, That's a quote from, from Psalm 118. And that word Hosanna is best translated save us or save. So it's clear that the people had a grasp that Jesus was there as the Messiah and the one who would save them. But perhaps they didn't quite fully understand what that meant for them. And we'll come on to that in a moment. But they had this idea that he was the, the one who was going to be um, the promised Messiah and, and the king. So we've mentioned that um, Jesus entered... Uh, on a colt, on a donkey. And we've we've thought a little bit about what the reasons for that were, but um, we can look into that a bit more and we can see that um, God's plan for salvation was meticulous in its detail. If we look at um, Zechariah 9 and 9, which we'll, we'll look at in a moment, um, we can see that Jesus' arrival on the donkey was a fulfilment of prophecy. And it was also a symbolic thing that tells us about God's plan and about um, what was to come and what was to happen to Jesus. And, and it's, it's symbolic in a number of ways. Just as an aside, really, um, when we read in verse two, we read that Jesus knew that there would be a cult um, available for him to, to use. He says, just as you enter the village, you will find a cult tied there. It's an example of his divine omniscience. And it just it raised that question in my mind, at least. Um, was Jesus fully omniscient when he was here on earth when he, when he was a man on earth because we often say don't we that he, he put on humanity and we have this concept that it, it says it elsewhere in, in the gospels that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature so to us that suggests that maybe um, he wasn't born all knowing but rather he, he grew as we grow and he, and he learned things as we learn things um, so perhaps sometimes we question whether Jesus was all-knowing. Another example is um, in Matthew 24 and verse 36. Jesus himself says, um, speaking of the second coming, about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So it just leads us to question, um, well, in what way was Jesus God and in what way was Jesus man? It can be a struggle, can't it, to try and put those two things together sometimes? I think Philippians 2 and verses 5 to 8 is helpful in this. Um, A well-known passage again, but um, it, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, we have it there in verse 6. It says, being in very nature God. So let's never make the mistake of questioning whether Jesus was fully God. We often say, don't we, that it's not that he was 50% God and 50% man. He was fully God and fully man, existing in the same, the same person. And I think the best way for us to think about it, of course we'll never fully understand it, but the best way for us to think about it is he, he put on humanity. And it says he, he humbled himself. So perhaps um, we can say that although he was omniscient, he was God, he, he was all-knowing, at times he, he put that to one side and, and he, was, he was clothed in a, in a human body and he was subject to the limitations that we are. And it's, um, it's something that we can't quite get our heads around, I think, but, but perhaps that's a helpful way of looking at it. Um, one commentator put it this way, which I, I, th- I thought was helpful. Without ceasing to be what he was, he assumed what he was not. Christ is true God with all the divine attributes, fully and eternally actualized, but at the same time he's true man with genuine human limitations and frailty. So we have that contrast there, don't we? Um, something that's again difficult for us to grasp but I just thought as an aside it it would be something helpful for us to consider that Philippians passage alongside um, what we've read but um, nevertheless we read that Jesus knew that there would be that that cult available and um, again it's an example of God's meticulous detail in his plan for salvation for us so We've said that it was a fulfilment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's no plainer example, I think, of of a fulfilment of prophecy than that. Right down to the, the detail of it being a colt, the foal of a donkey, we see that Jesus... Fulfils that prophecy in a a real way. In a literal way. So it says. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. So we have an idea of righteousness. And I think that. That tells us plainly that. This person of, of whom the prophecy was speaking. Is someone who was divine. It's the righteousness of God isn't it. So righteous and victorious. Yet lowly. Lowly and riding on a donkey. So we have a contrast between the righteousness and, and the victory that comes with being, be, being God, the all-powerful God. And yet, as we read the Gospels, we see time and again that Jesus was someone who was humble and who, who humbled himself and um, was made lowly so that he could, um, he could reach those who needed him. So that contrast of righteousness and humility and lowliness was fulfilled in Christ as well. We also see from the fact that Jesus came in on a donkey that he was coming in peace. In those times, um, a horse was, consi- was associated with war and with, with uh, conquest, and a donkey was associated with peace. It's also thought that uh, Pontius Pilate, around the same time as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, was also making his own entry into Jerusalem. And again, we see another contrast with with him there. Um, It's thought that Pilate's purpose for for coming to Jerusalem at the same time was a display of the might and the power of Roman rulers. So there would have been hundreds, hundreds of, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews coming to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And almost in a counter to that, the the Romans would have come in with their chariots and their their armour and their, their many soldiers, just to dissuade any of the Jews who perhaps were considering any kind of uprising or revolt just a reminder that the Romans were still there and they were still very much in control so again we have a contrast between uh, Pilate who came in his thought with, with his chariots and his many men and his, his weapons and Jesus coming in on the colt of a donkey and yet Despite that, we know that it was Jesus who was the one with the real authority. John 19 and verses 10 to 11 records the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And it says, Pilate speaking, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So it's that image again of the, the gentle and humble Jesus coming in on the donkey in that lowly way but always aware that he was the one who was really in control. He was, he was uh, the son of God and he was the one by whom all authority was given to, to men. And we know today, don't we, that Jesus was the real um, the one who was really in charge whilst he was down here on earth. So coming back to our passage, we read in verse 2 that Jesus said, you'll find a cult which no one has ever ridden. So we have that detail again. Um, the detail that, that the donkey had never been ridden. And the, the significance of that is that uh, unused animals were often dedicated for ceremonial or sacrificial purposes in the Old Testament. It's just another example of, of God's detail and God's um, of God's planning for, for the, um, the plan of salvation. And it's just so fitting, isn't it, that Jesus, knowing what was, befo- what was before him, the sacrifice that he would have to make of himself, uh, chose to enter Jerusalem in this way. The Bible's full of imagery like this and metaphor where um, it points to Jesus' death and resurrection throughout the Old Testament and the New. We see so many images and metaphors of, of Jesus' death And his resurrection. And it just I think gives us confidence. Time and again that this was always God's plan for humanity. We read don't we that before the foundation of the world. It was God's plan that that we'd be saved. And and we'd be brought back to him. And it's an encouragement for us I think to read our Bibles. Because the more we read. The more we see that Jesus is woven into every part of God's word. So just a a challenge for us there to, to be. Seeing Jesus in everything—it's right through the Old Testament, and it's—it's it's in the Gospels, of course and um, it—it's—it's a it's benefit to us if we can see Jesus in every passage that we read. <coughs> so we thought about the the arrival on the donkey, and we've we've touched on the fact that the crowd acknowledged him as the Messiah, the coming King. The people in in Jerusalem at the time, would have seen as many miracles, and they would have heard as many parables and stories in particular, perhaps they would have had in mind that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the, de- the dead. This is of course something that was absolutely amazing and would have, would have got people talking and and no doubt it would have spread like wildfire that, that this amazing thing had happened. so we have his miracles and As we say, the wise parables and and the authority with which Jesus spoke would no doubt have caused many to to question, who is this Jesus? And it would have got uh, tongues wagging, as we might say. Um, Just people desperate to find out more about him and to to know where this authority came from. But it's clear, after all these these signs and wonders that the people believed him to be sent from God. And as we said, that word Hosanna, uh, save us, is a reference to, to Psalm 118, which they would have been familiar with, and it's said in an expectant way. I think we can we can be safely uh, confident of it wasn't it wasn't a desperate cry of "Please save us!" It was we, almost to say, "We've been waiting for you. We've, we've been waiting for this Messiah. Um, come and come and be victorious in in a sense. Come and come and conquer." Um, so it was an expression of praise. And it was an acknowledgement that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for. But it does seem that the people's understanding of the Messiah wasn't necessarily about sin and about forgiveness. We know, don't we, that Jesus came to conquer over sin and death. He didn't come to lead any kind of military conquest over over Rome or anything like that. He was coming to, to conquer sin, which is the ultimate enemy. But the Jews at the time some of them at least would have been thinking of the Messiah as someone who'd come and lead them to an earthly victory, a, a victory over their oppressors, the Romans. And their concern was for the here and now, and they wanted a military leader, they wanted a conqueror, they wanted someone to bring them out from this, this occupying Roman oppressor that they were, they were under. So when we think about that, when we think about the, the people's view of who the Messiah was and who Jesus was, And these cries of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We can contrast that just just a few days later. These same people would have been the ones who were calling for Jesus to be executed. They would have been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Because no doubt when it became clear that he wasn't going to be leading them in some kind of mighty earthly conquest against the Romans. um, It seems from what we read that they turned on him. They weren't really interested in who he was anymore. Um, they looked on him as one who was who was condemned to death and perhaps even to be pitied. And they, they were there with their shouts of crucifying. But of course, we know today, don't we, that Jesus didn't come to conquer any earthly power. He came to conquer sin and death. It's what we've been thinking about this morning in our remembrance. And Colossians 2 outlines it in Really victorious language for us. Colossians 2 and 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's the language of, of a war that's been won, isn't it? A battle that's been won, where the enemy is, is brought out um, and made a spectacle of. No doubt it was common in those days that that would happen um, to, to make sure no one was in any doubt that um, the victorious army ha- had indeed been victorious over their enemies. Um, and we have that same language here that, that sin and death have been thoroughly dealt with by, by Jesus. And it says he triumphed over them by the cross. So just a reminder for us that there can be no greater triumph. Uh, We don't see that Jesus came to earth to to conquer in a a military way, but we know that he won a far greater victory um, by going to the cross and and dealing with the the punishment that was meant to be ours. We, We see that there was the ultimate triumph over the ultimate foe, which was sin and death. So again, there's another contrast here. The gentle, humble Jesus riding into the city on a donkey and the triumphant conqueror who defeated the greatest foe. So we've looked at at Jesus coming in on a donkey and we've looked at who the people were expecting the Messiah to be. And it's clear even that the the Pharisees um, knew that Jesus was claiming to be To be the Messiah because in Luke 19 and 39 the Pharisees say to Jesus rebuke your disciples. And it's clear that they felt that the people were speaking blasphemy when they said blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there was no doubt that Jesus was claiming to be um, this coming king, this Messiah. And ultimately as we know Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem would, would culminate in his arrest and his false trial and his crucifixion. And it's all according to, to that plan that we've been talking about, God's perfect plan for our salvation. So, after Jesus' arrival in this way, this, this triumphant way into Jerusalem, we have this account that he, he went into the temple and it's clear that he was, he was angered by what he saw there. And we read that he overturned the tables and he drove out those who were, who were selling um, doves and various animals. This is an example, isn't it, of of righteous anger. Um, Jesus was aggrieved that this temple, the earthly representation of his father's presence, was being belittled in this way. It appears from what we read that the Passover festival was big business for for some. Um, As we've said, there would have been hundreds of thousands of Jews making this, this pilgrimage to the temple for the Passover. And all of them would have needed animals for sacrifice. And all of them would have needed to pay an annual temple tax. And they would have been coming from various places with various different kinds of currency. And they would have needed their money changed to, in order to pay this tax. So there was clearly a big market for, for those who wanted to, to, to make some money. And perhaps we get an indication of what the kinds of people were who were doing this. Um, Jesus himself uses the phrase, a den of robbers. And perhaps we shouldn't necessarily assume that Jesus was just angry at the buying and selling. Perhaps the, the buying and selling of sacrifices was legitimate. If it was done in accordance with, um, with serving God and with, with fulfilling the demands of the Passover, perhaps, perhaps that would have been okay. But we get this indication that um, many were taking advantage of the situation uh, perhaps they were charging very high prices, knowing that they had uh, a captive audience who, who needed the, the services that they were provided. Perhaps they were adding their own fees on top to, to make money for themselves. perhaps they were extorting the poor who, who out of desperation would, would, would just have, have had to pay these these um, prices but it 's clear that that jesus was, wasn 't impressed with the attitude of the people who were, who were turning the Passover into an opportunity to to get rich quick. We know that in those days, the temple was where God met with his people. Um, Unlike the synagogues, which were just, I say just, they were places to gather for prayer and for teaching and community, perhaps not dissimilar to to what we would consider our church hall to be today. So we have the synagogues, which were gathering places for for teaching and, and prayer and the like, but the temple was a different, a different idea. The temple was where God himself was present, where God's present dwelt, presence dwelt here on earth. So it was somewhere that was to be revered and respected. And by contrast, thinking of, of the description that we have of, of those buying and selling, we could perhaps think of um, the modern day equivalent, perhaps if we think of something like a stadium or, or somewhere where some football match or something is happening and there are those who are, who are setting up stalls and, and popping up all over the place to take advantage of the people who are there. And um, We can think of swarms of people and, and shouting of, of people trying to sell their various things and um, it's clear, isn't it, that this wasn't the, the intention for God's holy place, the temple. <clears throat> and not only that, but in addition it seems as though the the place where this all took place was the court of the Gentiles. The temple in those days had had separate courts for separate uh, uses. There was a court for the the Jewish men, there was a court for the Jewish women, Um, and then there was a court for the Gentiles. And we read in Isaiah 56 that God had made provision for all nations, it says, um, and foreigners to worship him. And this was the, the court of the Gentiles, for the non-Jewish people to, to worship God. But it seems from from the, the words that we get that uh, the Jews had allowed this, this place to become um, desecrated and, and to become the place where where all this kind of thing was going on. So it's not appropriate for, for God's dwelling place, God's temple. Just reading the, a couple of verses from Isaiah 56. Um, which which I've referenced, it says, verse 6 says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, the Sovereign Lord declares. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So there it is, God's provision for those who were not Jewish, who were not natives of his, his chosen people to come and worship if they, if they so wanted to. And that's great news for us, of course. Um, <clears throat> we know that, as we'll come on to in a moment, we know that uh, Jesus has dealt with the barrier between us and God and it means that we can come to God in worship and we can come to God to serve though we're not of that chosen people Israel um, still there is that provision for us to come to God and to worship and and a different provision was available at the time but um, as, we've, as we've thought the Jews did not respect that, that area that, that course of the Gentiles where they were to worship so thinking about that idea that that um, we're in a similar situation to the Gentiles of the time. We're, we're not of that chosen people. And yet God has made a provision for us to come to him. Um, we sang in our opening hymn, uh, the veil is rent. And that's a reference to, as we know, when Jesus died, the veil separating the most holy place in the temple from the people was torn in two. And it was a signal uh, picture that the barrier between man and God had been dealt with, and that the way into God's presence was now open for all people, for Jews and for Gentiles, because of what Jesus had done. So it's good news for us, and it's just another way in which we can appreciate God's plan for salvation and his his gift of his Son. Um, The idea that the thing that was blocking us from God, that barrier of sin that was um, impossible for us to deal with, had been dealt with by the sacrifice of his son. And we see it in that tearing of the veil, meaning that the most holy place was now open to, to all um, all who would come to, to Jesus. <clears throat> so that leads us to ask, where's God's dwelling place today? We don't, um, we don't have a temple or, or a, a tabernacle as such that we, we consider to be God's dwelling place But we find the answer in 1 Corinthians 3 and 16. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So it's us, isn't it, that are the temple today. It's an amazing truth that God has no built dwelling place on this earth here today because he doesn't need one. Um, We are God's temple and if we've accepted Jesus as our saviour and, um, and we've accepted that gift of salvation and we've accepted that it's, it's by that sacrifice that the problem of sin, the barrier of sin has been dealt with, then we're assured in, in God's word that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And so God, God's presence dwells within us. He doesn't dwell in a, a specific place, but rather he dwells in each and every one of us who have believed in him. <clears throat> so it's just something that's amazing for us to to appreciate. I think the idea that um, in these days, since since the time of Jesus, um, the Spirit dwells in all believers, and it's a, a challenge for us to um, to consider how we how we consider ourselves as as that dwelling place of God. We've said that Jesus' death tore the veil in two, meaning that there were no, there was no longer any separation between God and man and that means that we can enjoy that relationship with God um, we're no longer bound to the ceremonial um, cleansing and, and all those those uh, requirements that there used to be in, in the old the old covenant and we don't need to visit any physical temple but rather God has cleansed us fully and he's made us acceptable to him and when he looks on us when we come to him in in prayer and thanksgiving and he looks on us he sees the, the spotlessness of his son and it makes us acceptable to him so really the the responsibility and the challenge for us is that we're to live as ones who are set apart for God we're God's temple and his spirit dwells within us and that makes us different from from other people and really the challenge is that we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of that worthy of those who are are, um, indwelt with God and have that closeness with God that we've been thinking of. So we see, as a a brief summary, we've seen that Jesus came into Jerusalem to declare himself as the Messiah and the coming King. And we see that the people realised that and they, they acknowledged him as the Messiah, but they perhaps didn't have the right grasp of what that means. But we know today that it was it was not a, an earthly conquering or an earthly victory that he came to bring but rather to defeat the ultimate foe which was sin and we read as we've considered that we're the temple um, we're the temple of God's spirit and the spirit indwells us and the challenge is just for us to, to be doing everything we can to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of that and to acknowledge that we're set apart for God we're God's um, manifestation on earth and we're to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of that shall we pray